Glad you guys are here. For those of you who are joining us online, we're glad y'all are with us as well. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 1. Middle school, you guys can slip out with Jeremy. If y'all want to do that. An update. So uh, Christmas Eve, we take up an offering and we give 100% of that offering away. And then uh, 10% of everything that comes in on a regular basis We give that away as well. So we give away 10% of our regular offerings in the end of the year. We give away the Christmas Eve offering. So for December, we had $90,000 to give away. It was amazing. Our Christmas Eve offering was about $57,000. And then we had this 10% number was about 33. I was actually hoping we'd have like 45,000. So that's my faith. We had 90,000 to give away. And on Thursday, we gave Park Street Elementary School $32,000, which paid for their whole playground. I was hoping we could pay for a third. We gave Must $25,000, which uh, fully outfitted a family room uh, in their new emergency shelter. I was hoping we could pay for half of that. We had $28,000 for our missionaries, and then we had $5,000 that we gave to uh, First Care Women's Clinic, what formerly known as Cobb Pregnancy, the, our local crisis pregnancy center. Amazing, amazing. So thank you all so much for your generosity and your faithfulness over the course of the entire year. God is good, and he's good to us through the body. That's often the way that he works. And so we're just really thankful for that. I want to give you all that update. Matt mentioned we're on day seven of a 21-day fast. Now, there's a couple of moves. We're trying to relinquish control. We want empty hands. We want to relinquish control of everything that we tend to grab onto. And normally what we grab onto are the good things that God gives to us. And we also want to have hearts that are full. So we want hands that are empty. We want hearts that are full. We want to seek the Lord and ask Him with intentionality and intensity, what do you want to do in me? And what do you want to do through me during this time? And for you, this time can be all of 2021 or it can be the next 30 days. However you kind of, whatever your grid is for looking to the future, we want to ask the Lord uh, to be using, to be working in us and working through us. I know many of you are fasting, and we're really uh, thankful that you're doing that. Many of you were here on Wednesday night. It was great. I don't know how the fasting is going for you. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said they were in the honeymoon stage of a fast. For me, that lasts for about 20 minutes, and then I'm done. I'm doing this vegan deal plus no sweets. So I've done no meat multiple times for, for, during Lent for 40 days, but I've never done no meat and no cheese. Those are my two food groups. And I went to a restaurant the other day with a guy. I'd never met him before. We were at a restaurant. It's called Capers in Kennesaw. And the menu looked great, but everything was meat and cheese. I can see why vegans are so skinny because there's nothing to eat anywhere. And so I get this salad and I have a rule where I'm only, I only do one alteration to a dish. I'm afraid if I do two, I may offend the kitchen and they'll spit my food. So I do, I do one, and my choices on this salad, there's two things I want to take off. Parmesan cheese for the fast and fried beets because they're beets. I've never even had a beet. I wouldn't know one if I saw one. And in my mind, I'm trying to picture what, is a, what does that even look like? And I'm meeting with a guy who I've never met before. And I'm thinking, how's it going to look? I'm an adult if I leave all of these fried beets in my bowl. But I go for it. And so I order the salad, no Parmesan, cheese, because it's vegan. 
And the fried beets, I can't believe I'm saying this, they, they actually tasted okay. They were, they were shaved really thin like chips and they were salty. And this is probably the worst thing that I've done in the past week. Me and my, Mary Margaret, we try to go out once a week, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. We just try to find a time. And I actually picked that place yesterday so I could eat those beets again. So my, that's nothing to clap about. It's a sad day in the life of me when I'm picking, I'm picking beets. So hopefully you're uh, faring a little better than I am in your fast. Uh, and again, we do want to encourage you two more weeks, continue to press, continue to press into the Lord. I really do think he's going to be working, speaking, moving, and we want to have ears to hear, eyes to see. Last week we looked at Zacchaeus. Y'all remember him? He climbed a tree and we said we want to do that. He climbed a tree in order to see Jesus. He overcame some limitations, overcame some obstacles. He was willing to be embarrassed, maybe. We want to do that in order for us to see Jesus. And we also saw the importance of repentance, of changing our mind, of being willing to ask the Holy Spirit in this time, is there any place where I'm currently disagreeing with you where I need to move towards agreement? And being wide open, not just looking at that in a spiritual or even a moral context, but in every aspect of life, is there any place where I'm disagreeing with you? A little tangent off of this idea of repentance. I've had some folks ask me about the chaos on Capitol Hill on January 6th. I guess some people see that as a protest and some as an uprising, whatever you want to call it. You know, what, what do I think? Or as a Christian, what's our perspective? You know, in our country, we're allowed to do peaceful protests. So if a protest is peaceful, it's fine. As Christians, violence is always a sin. So if a protest turns violent, then we can't condone it and participate in it as believers. If you break into a building that's where you're forbidden to go, that's against the law, and you're probably going to be prosecuted, and that's good and right and as it should be. None of that, to me, really seems tricky as a Christian to, to, to navigate what happened on the 6th. To me, the, the challenge to all of us is from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus takes the locus of sin from our behavior out here, and he pushes it into our hearts and says, it's actually what's going on in here. This, this is where evil comes from. It's from within your heart. Yes, it manifests itself in behavior, but restricting the behavior, controlling the behavior, it doesn't mean you've actually dealt with the sin. You've heard that it was said, don't commit murder. Well, of course we don't want to commit murder. But I say to you, don't call someone a fool or you're in the danger of the fires of hell. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. Of course we don't want to do that. But I say to you, anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. He's pushing sin inward and saying, deal with it. I know most of you, you're not storming a building. Like, you're not going to do that. But the challenge to us is to look in our hearts and say, are the seeds of that type of sin, it may, it may manifest itself differently in our lives. Most of us have enough self-control to not push through a police barricade and ransack a building. But are the seeds of that sin in our heart? For some of us, we need to be asking the Holy Spirit during these three weeks, do I need to change my mind about the way I view politics? Am I putting too much hope in politics, in a political party, in a person? Am I looking for a law or legislation or procedures or protocols to do what only you can do, which is change people's hearts? Am I reaching for power to try to accomplish things that you said could only be done through love and self-sacrifice? I heard a pastor say this week, it was a great line. One of the things we may need to be asking the Lord, am I being discipled? more by my media bias than I am by you, Jesus. 
Am I spending more time consuming CNN or Fox News or whoever you listen to than I am in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And are those things shaping my perspective more than you are? All of those things to me, if I'm thinking of the challenge for us, the challenge for us is that Matthew 5, looking in our own hearts and saying, Holy Spirit, is there anything that I need to change my mind about when it comes to that whole world of politics and all, that that, and all of the ways that manifests in, in my life? And I would encourage you to do the same thing over these next couple of weeks. I don't necessarily think politics is bad, but I certainly think there are things about it that can infect, or, or at least our approach it can infect our hearts. And again, y'all aren't going to storm a building, and I'm not going to storm a building. But I think the question is to say, am I, am I putting hope in a, in a person or in an institution or in a process that rightly belongs on Jesus? So just ask the question and see what he says. Today we're going to look at Hannah, the most faithful woman in the Old Testament. We're going to start, I'm going to read this in, in chunks because it's kind of a long passage. I'm going to skip a little bit with all of the names because I don't know how to say all of them. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children. Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? So Hannah's predicament. She's the first wife of Elkanah. And she's barren. She can't have children. So that's a, that's a huge disgrace. It was the, the biggest disgrace an Israelite woman could endure is to not be able to have children. And for Elkanah, it's, that's, it's dangerous for him. If he doesn't have children, then he has no heirs. And if he has no heirs, then the name of his family basically will be wiped out from the people of God. What God gave the Israelites was land. He gave them each a plot of land. And if you don't have anyone to pass your land onto in your family, then your land gets absorbed into somebody else's land. And your family line dies out, and so does your name. It dies out. So it was, it was common for someone who was well-to-do, if their wife could not have children that they would marry a second wife. And that's what Elkanah does. He marries a second wife, Peninnah. She's able to have children. And she torments Hannah. That's the word. It's a strong word. She torments Hannah. And this tormenting seems to be the exacerbated when they go on their annual pilgrimage to Shiloh. That's where the tent of meeting is. You'll see a picture there. It's the precursor to the temple. It's a temporary structure that the Israelites can move, and it's where the Ark of the Covenant is. So that's the place where you go to worship. So Elkanah, as a righteous man, takes his family, and they worship there once a year. And a highlight of that time in Shiloh is what, maybe like our Christmas dinner, or our Thanksgiving meal. So a portion of the sacrifice and the offerings that Elkanah brings, he would get back. A portion is burned, and that's God's. A portion is given to the priests, 
for, their, for them to eat. And then a portion comes back to the giver, comes back to the one who made the offering. And he would eat that with his family. It would have been most likely the best meal they ate all year. And Peninnah provokes Hannah, torments her to the point that she can't even eat Christmas dinner with her family. And Elkanah does his best. He gives her twice as much meat as he gave Peninnah. And he says, I love you and, and, and don't I mean more to you than 10 sons. But none of that is as, as wonderful as he's trying to be. None of that deals with her misery. And that's the word. She's miserable. She's a wreck. So what does she do in her barrenness? And what does she do in this, in this devastation, not being able to have children and have that constantly being thrown in her face. Once, when they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house in her deep anguish. That phrase is literally in her bitterness of soul. Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As Hannah kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Don't take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered her, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Hannah said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. So in her misery, Hannah turns towards the Lord. She goes to the tent of meeting. Eli's a retired priest. He's kind of like a bouncer at this point. He's at the doorpost of the tent of meeting to make sure nothing inappropriate is happening in the sacred space. And Hannah's pouring her soul out to the Lord. That's what it says. She's pouring her soul out to the Lord, praying intensely. Whole, all of her is engaged in this prayer. And she makes a vow. God, don't forget me. Remember me. If you give me a son, I'll give him back to you for all the days of his life. This whole idea about the razor, it's a Nazarite vow. So for, it's normally a 30-day vow, one month. No haircuts, no alcohol. Don't, you can't be around a dead body, even if it's your family. And so people would take that vow for 30 days. And Hannah is saying, if you give me a son, he'll be set apart for you for his whole life. That vow will apply to him for his entire life. Eli mistakes her intensity in prayer and her desperation in prayer for drunkenness. And he's going to rebuke her. And, she, and, and when he walks up to her and, and rebukes her, she's like, no, 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 no. I'm miserable. I've been pouring my heart out to the Lord. If we had time, we could look at what each of those emotional words means that describes Hannah. They all mean something a little bit different. She says, I'm complaining to the Lord. That's what she says. I'm, in, I'm, I'm afflicted. I'm in pain. Those are the words that she's using to describe her state and what she's doing. And Eli says, well, God, may God give you what you're asking for. And we see Hannah's faith. She still has not conceived a child and she gets up and eats. Remember, Peninnah was tormenting her to the point that she wouldn't eat. And now we see her eating. There's a flip. Even though her circumstances haven't changed, she believes God has heard her prayer. Pivot point. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord. 
then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. Those four words, the Lord remembered her. Those are the four most important words in this chapter. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. That word remembered when it's applied to God, incredibly important particularly in the Old Testament. It's called an anthropomorphism. That's where we take human characteristics and apply them to God. If we say God has hands or God has arms, he doesn't. He's a spirit. But it helps us understand who he is and how he's working. The word remembered is the same thing. God's omniscient. So he knows everything that can be known. So he doesn't, he, by definition, he can't forget anything because he knows everything, which means he never remembers anything because he never forgets anything. He always knows it. So why do we use that word? Why does the Old Testament repeatedly say the Lord remembered? Because for us, our perspective, there are times where we feel like he's forgotten us. Genesis, the Lord remembered Noah and sent a wind to dry up the land because they've been on the ark for months. Genesis, God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. She'd been barren, and hadn't been able to have kids. God remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and sent Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery. They've been slaves for 400 years. Of course they felt forgotten at times. Our perspective is God is remembering us. He's expressing this kindness and goodness to us after a period of time when we've been struggling or suffering. He never forgot Hannah, but from her perspective, he absolutely had forgotten her. And then when she conceives... That, in her mind, it's, he remembers me now. Remember her prayer, don't forget me, remember me. And then the, the pivot words, and the Lord remembered Hannah. And she conceives and has Samuel. Now, what is she going to do? When Hannah's husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. So he's probably three, probably for three years. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull and ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And he brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So Hannah fulfills her vow. When, when Samuel's about three years old, she takes him to the tent of meeting and she leaves him with Eli and the priests. And he's raised there. She sees him once a year. We see later in Samuel. He brings her, she brings him a new set of clothes once a year. But she leaves him with, in the presence of the Lord, at the tent of meeting with the priest. Phenomenal act of devotion. We can read ahead and see that, that Hannah's going to have five more children. But when she makes the vow, when she fulfills the vow, she doesn't know. Samuel may be the only one she ever has. And again, she gives him fully to the Lord. It's, an, it's a remarkable story. Two things that we can learn from, from Hannah. One, this is really just for a few of you. This is not for everybody. It will be for everybody at some point. But right now, I think there's probably only a handful of you who would fit in this category. If you were honest, you would say right now you feel like Hannah in the middle of the chapter. You feel forgotten. 
You're struggling. You're suffering. Maybe you'd even say you're miserable. And you know God could fix it. It really wouldn't be that hard for him to do something about it. But he's not. And you feel forgotten by him. The encouragement we get from Hannah, allow your suffering, your misery, to turn you towards the Lord, not away. She's the only person, the only woman in the Bible, whose barrenness is explicitly attributed to God. And twice we read, the Lord closed her womb. That's an important point. God is the one who's keeping her from having children. The one who told her, be fruitful and multiply, is keeping her from being fruitful and multiplying. And yet, she turns towards him and does not get bitter. And notice when she turns towards him, she does it without reservation. She says, I'm pouring my soul out to the Lord. Again, all of the emotional words that describe her and her actions. There's no hesitation or equivocation in her approach to the Lord. He's her only hope. There are no fertility specialists in her town. She's either barren or God intervenes. And rather than getting bitter, rather than getting hard-hearted, she turns to God fully and places all the weight of her hope on Him, the very one who we can say has caused her misery. He's the source, and yet she turns to Him. And how quickly do we, not knowing the source, of our struggles, but how often do we get bitter when God doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we want or as quickly as we want him to? I want to encourage you, if you feel forgotten, one, own that. Like, just be honest. Don't say, well, other people have it worse than me. Who cares? Someone always has it worse than you. The question is not, where are you on the scale of misery? It's, do you feel forgotten? And is that driving a wedge between you and Jesus? These next two weeks, be challenged and encouraged by Hannah. Put, the full, put your full weight, the full weight of your hope upon him. Pour out your soul. Don't hold back in prayer. One of those words that Hannah uses that gets, that gets kind of muddy in the NIV, she complains to God. She's complaining to him. It's okay. He already knows how you feel anyway, so you might as well tell him. He's big enough to handle it. Put the full weight of your hope on him. Turn to him fully and let this be the theme of your prayer. God, remember me. God, I feel like you've forgotten me and I'm asking you in the next two weeks, remember me and let's see what he does. For everybody, so this is an all in from Hannah, the importance of dedication. This is a challenge So I want to lay some groundwork, and you're going to have to think about this prayerfully, I would imagine. And we'll dive back into this Wednesday night uh, at the worship night. So just some groundwork, because this is a big, this is significant. Hannah dedicates Samuel, at that point, the most precious treasure in her life, fully to the Lord. Again, just like she turns to him without reservation... She dedicates Samuel without reservation. There were other options available to her. Every firstborn son was dedicated to the Lord. When, the son, when your son was a month old, you went to the tent of meeting or the temple once it was built, and you paid five shekels, and that payment, that was the way you redeemed your son. Instead of give, leaving him at the temple, you, you put down 
five shekels, and that was a way of saying, God, he's yours, and I'm redeeming him. She could have done that. That's what every Israelite mom did with her son. There were other vows available to her. She could have dedicated Samuel for a month or a year or five years or ten years and then received him back. But she didn't do that. She voluntarily committed before she'd even conceived. Give me a son with no promise that she'd have another and I'll give him to you all the days of his life. Think about that. The most precious treasure in her life, she gives fully to the Lord. What we see in the Old Testament concretely Oftentimes in the New Testament and in our lives plays out spiritually. So Hannah literally, physically took Samuel and left him with Eli when he was three years old. And then she saw him once a year after that. For us, dedication, it doesn't look like that. I don't want any of your children as wonderful as they are. Don't bring them here and leave them here. And then say, potty train them or we'll get them after puberty or whatever. It is. I don't, we don't want to do that. What does it look like? For us, dedication is about ownership and it's about priority. Acknowledging who is the true owner of all of the good gifts. James 1, every good and perfect gift comes from our Father, from the Father of lights. Dedication is acknowledging that. And it's acknowledging His priority in whatever that thing is or relationship is. So I want you to start doing an inventory, not a blanket, God, I dedicate my life to you. That's wonderful. But really specifically, start running through the most precious things in your life. What does it look like for you to dedicate those things fully to Jesus? Those of you who are married, when was the last time you and your spouse said out loud, prayerfully, God, we dedicate our marriage to you. It's yours. We have these dreams, but ultimately we want what you want. You use our marriage however you want to. I just thought about this. What about those of you who are approaching retirement? What does it look like to dedicate those years to the Lord? We all have a picture of what that looks like. We're going to play golf or we're going to travel. or What if the Lord wants something else for you? Are you willing to dedicate those retirement years to the Lord? Your possessions, your house, your cars, your retirement plan, to dedicate that stuff to the Lord. It's yours. What about parents for you to dedicate your children? Many of you did it when they were babies, when they were infants. And and it's wonderful and it's good and it's right to do that. But honestly, that's the easiest time because they're all potential. It's more difficult when they're 16 and 17 and 18. And they're making a decision that's not necessarily the decision that you would want. And they're saying, but this is the direction the Lord's leading me. What does it look like to dedicate your children to the Lord when they're teenagers or when they're out of the house as adults? To constantly be re-upping that acknowledgement and that recognition. We were praying this morning, Jeremy Morris, the phrase he used was unintentional idols. How quickly good gifts can become unintentional idols if we're not regularly and intentionally dedicating, giving those things back to God, our tendency is to grab hold of good gifts and then to begin to control them and to possess them and to see them as ours. And at most, we'll give God a portion. Think about your money. How many of us are like, well, I give God this percent, but then the rest of it is mine. And I don't really pray about what to do about it. He got his cut. 
however big or small that cut is. Versus recognizing everything I have is his. Not just, not just 5% or 10% or 20%. It's all his. And so he can do whatever he wants with it. Taking the posture of a steward versus an owner. Some of you own your own business. Have you ever dedicated that to the Lord explicitly? Not, I'm not saying have you asked God to bless it. I'm sure you have. Have you said, God, this is yours. And so you can do whatever you want with it. Success or failure according to the world's standards. It doesn't matter. However you want to use this to advance your purposes in this community and in the world, it's, it's yours. I'm just a steward. I'm just a steward. You're the owner. What would it look like if all Christian business owners did that? How would that impact our community if everyone that ran their own business recognized they were just running their business? They weren't owning it. That Jesus was the ultimate owner. And they were just stewards. Think through the things that are most precious to you. When was the last time you explicitly dedicated those things to the Lord? That can be scary. You've got to trust Him. You've got to trust that He's going to do right with those things. He's going to do good with those things. That, you know, honestly, for many of us, if we could peel back the layers of our heart, we think we'd do a better job than God at running things. And that's why we don't trust Him. Because we think we're, we would do better. We're not sure what He's going to do. So for you, the first step may be just saying, God, I need, to, I need a, a deeper revelation of your goodness. I trust you to this point, but I don't trust you. I, I don't trust you enough to dedicate my kids to you. I don't trust you enough to dedicate my possessions to you. It scares me too much. Be honest and say, God, I, show me. Lead me to a place where I can see you as trustworthy, where I can recognize you as a good father who always is working good. For his children. I do want to make one word of caution as you're thinking about this. Don't make a rash vow. Hannah's vow was not rash. It was something that I think she considered and she followed through. Judges 11, one of the most brutal chapters in the Bible. There's a leader named uh, Jephthah, J-E-P-T-H-A-T, or J-E-P-T-H-A-H, and he's an insecure leader. And uh, God has called him to lead the Israelites for this particular time and again he's insecure and so he makes this vow and he says God if you'll give the give the Ammonites to me if you'll give me victory over the Ammonites the first thing that comes out of my house I'll give back to you as a burnt offering so he leads the Israelites in battle they defeat the Ammonites he comes home and the first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter it's a brutal chapter rash vows vows are voluntary and I would say you, we want to be sober-minded before we make them. Hannah was. We want to vow something that we're not willing. We don't want to commit something that we're not willing to follow through with. That's not a scary thing. Again, the more and more that we recognize God's goodness and that he's trustworthy, the more willing we are to dedicate every good gift back to him. And again, I think the, the flip of that is those good gifts can quickly become idols for us if we're not constantly giving them back. To the Lord. That's that. It's the action of releasing, of letting go, of acknowledging His ownership and His priority. So I want us to close with prayer and worship. Again, that's kind of a, that's a tough word, but something we all need to wrestle with. Bo's going to come back. He and Michelle are going to lead us in a time of worship. And I want to give you all a couple of ways to respond. You can close your eyes if you would. First, if you're Hannah and you feel forgotten, 
I want to encourage you to come forward for prayer. You can kneel or stand here at the altar. If you want to be by yourself, you can sit in the chairs off to the side. I want you to do that as a sign of your wholehearted commitment to the Lord. That you're putting the full weight of your hope upon Him. If you come to the stage, someone will put a hand on your back and they'll pray that God would give you grace and that He would remember you. That's what we're going to pray. That God would remember you. So we want you to come forward uh, during this time. For all of us, this idea of dedication, we all need to wrestle with it. And you may not be ready at this point to dedicate the things that you're holding on to with the, uh, to the Lord. And that's okay. I just want to encourage you to start somewhere. So a couple of places. First question. Holy Spirit, show me. Is there anything I've made an unintentional idol in my life? Is there a good gift that you have given me, Father? That I'm now holding on to. I'm seeing it as mine to do with as I will. Versus yours to steward according to your will. And just ask him. Show me. Show me what needs to be dedicated or rededicated to you. If that's kind of scary or intimidating to you, you may want to start here. God, I want to get there. I'm not where Hannah was. I can't imagine on the front end making a vow like she made. God, would you show me your goodness? Would you show me your care? Would you show me, uh, would you show yourself to me as the one who is trustworthy? I want to get to a place where I can dedicate, fill in the blank to you. I'm just not there yet. So would you, would you work in my heart, Holy Spirit, bringing me to that place of full surrender and dedication? Or maybe you're ready. Maybe the Lord's been stirring your heart and been speaking to you and you're ready. Then we would encourage you. Maybe you want to come down front as well as a public declaration of your willingness to dedicate whatever that area of your life is to the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you speak? God, we pray for the Hannahs as, as their brothers and sisters. God, we pray that you would remember them. We pray that in these next two weeks, you would do a work in their life that they would know they haven't been forgotten. And God, for all of us, I pray that you would give us the faith, the hope, the courage of Hannah to dedicate the things that are most precious to us back to you, to use however you will. It's interesting if you think about Samuel, who's such a pivotal person in Israel's history, led them from being a confederation of 12 tribes to being one nation with a king, anointed Saul, first king of Israel, anointed David, the ideal king of Israel. Such an important figure in Israel's history. All we know is what we know. We don't know what would have happened if things had been different. What if Hannah had been able to conceive easily? Would it have ever crossed her mind to make that vow, to dedicate her son to the Lord fully? And if she'd never made that vow, then Samuel doesn't grow up in the temple. And as righteous and faithful as Hannah and Elkanah are, how might things have been different for Samuel growing up in their home versus growing up near the ark, near the, the presence of God on earth? We don't know. I don't think it's a stretch to say things might have played out different. You don't know what your dedication, you don't know what that's going to mean. 
You don't know how God wants to use your kids or your marriage or your stuff or your business, your retirement, your future. The younger you are, the harder it is to say that. God, I dedicate my future to you. Some of you have been working for years, years, preparing for a career and a life. And to say, God, I, I, I dedicate all of that to you. And you don't know if there's going to be a hard right turn or not. That could be a scary thing. But you don't know how he wants to use you. you don't, we don't know. And that's why it's called faith. God, would you give us that? In Jesus' name, amen. You guys come forward. We're going to run probably three or four minutes late. I hope that's okay. Um, and Bo will dismiss us in a minute. Inside of those lungs, come on and 
Um, glad you're able to join us for worship. I have Ryan Jackson. He's here with me. And really, we're just talking about uh, dedication. And, and really, this, this idea that we, it does challenge us in how we view God. Do we trust him enough to give him back over the things? The things that we're dedicating are always, um, I feel like the pattern is always things that are good, things that he's given us, talents or skills or passions of ours. Um, that have developed into these things, these businesses, families, careers, um, all these positive things. And the Lord is just saying, well, do you trust me to give them over to you? Do you trust that I can still meet your needs? Um, and, you know, thinking about this fast that we are in, and I don't know about you guys, but I feel like anytime I've fasted, there's this initial emotional, emotional pushback. Be like, yeah, I'm going to fast, but uh, emotionally not really want to. But I know every single time I've, I've fasted, um, at the end, it's like, yes, that was worth it. That had substance. That was good for me. And that was something that the Lord did in me. Um, and, and so I just want to encourage you, as you guys are fasting along with us, um, I'm sure there's some emotional holdback, but just know that um, really the Lord is doing a work in us, that the things that we're bringing to him, our prayer requests, our needs, the things where we want to see him move, he will be moving and speaking um, as we dedicate this year. Lord Ryan, what do you got? Well, as David was preaching today, I was just thinking too about as we're kind of focusing on the Lord and fasting and, and trusting in Him, what was highlighted to me as well was when Hannah prayed and made that dedication to the Lord about her first child, that immediately her prayer in a way was answered. I mean, I think sometimes we forget about that, but I mean, God does answer our, our prayers right away, and that sometimes might be waiting and for that child to come. But you could see that answer because she was able to eat right away. She was able to relinquish that, that burden that she had of not having kids over to the Lord right away, that it was taken away and that her face was lifted up and she was able to eat the food again. And, and there was an element that I saw there of her just being kind of happy again because she was able to turn that over to the Lord. 
Yeah, that is cool. The Lord met her at the time of dedication, provided all that she needed. Go instantly, really, and going forward. That is cool. I hope today was encouraging for you. Spend some time um, asking, talking to the Lord, and what, is it, what does it look like for me to dedicate the good things in your life back to the Lord? I hope you guys have a great week. We'll see you next week.